You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. I got nothing going on, you got nothing going on, I need something to do, we need something to do, you should know by now that man in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. you like to do whatever baby cuz i oh i don't care yeah yeah it's all right. Hello, dear listener. Danny Anderson here. I teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I host this podcast. Now, we've had multiple requests for more episodes about quote-unquote pop culture. Well, prepare yourselves. Uh, today we have one for you. Uh, I am joined today by Carter Stepper. Carter listens to the show and other shows in the network as well, and he contacted us about doing an episode about sci-fi and social critique. So this show is pretty much his idea, and I'm really glad to be along for the ride. So why don't you join me in welcoming Carter to the show. How's it going, man? It is going great. Thanks, Danny. That's great. Um, since you're new here, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm in Spokane, Washington. Uh, I, um, I've i been teaching for about three years now. I teach humanities, history, um, some uh, theology classes uh, to, to secondary students, mostly high school. Um, I'm going to be teaching at a local school here uh, starting this next year, primarily history classes. Um, I'm very interested in history, theology, literature. I've been a big fan of these shows for a while. Um, so yeah, I've been here all my life except for three years I spent in Pennsylvania. I've, I'm married, I've got a couple kids, uh, and I'm really excited to be uh, joining up on the show here today um, and talking about science fiction. Awesome. I'm glad to, to do this as well. I have to admit that this is not, I have not read that much science fiction. I've read a bit, I mean more than many people, but clearly not as much as you. But I've seen a lot of sci-fi movies, and so that'll probably be most of what I add today, but uh, no. Um, that works. I, I really thank you for being here, though, and I'm really happy to talk about this with you today. Uh, and if you're out there listening in the iPod land, uh, if you have, have any re- reactions to the show, positive, negative, things that you want to add on or continue, uh, please remember to contact us at the Facebook page or at our website, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram as well. Well, 
Let's get going, Carter. Um, so uh, this was a really good idea you had. What is it about sci-fi that draws you in, and maybe what is your history with it? Let's just sort of talk in more general terms. Sure. Um, okay, so science fiction I came to kind of in an odd way. Um, I, uh, like any good uh, little uh, adolescent boy, I liked Star Wars um, because laser swords, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, as I was... Uh, uh, enjoying that at about the age of, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years old, I, I realized there was this other thing called Star Trek, and I started getting VHS tapes at the um, uh, at the library and discovered I really enjoyed that show, campy though it was, um, and that there were spinoffs, because this was the 90s, and, you know, they had a few series going at that point. Um, so, I, you know, started out liking it because it was adventures and aliens and whatnot. But what I discovered as I got older is that I really liked science fiction just for the, really for the the thoughtfulness, the kinds of ideas it posed. I mean, not, as a nine-year-old, I didn't really care too much. Um, I, you know, I wanted to see lasers, but um, but but it's interesting how it kept it sort of grabbed me and kept me over the years. Um, I started reading. Um, science fiction novels. I uh, started watching other, maybe uh, harder or more cultish sci-fi films um, and television shows, and I really, um, I found what what happened is that it ended up being very intellectually stimulating for me in a way. In fact, um, as I got older and, and was reading um, some of the deeper novels, things like Isaac Asimov's Foundation series or ah. Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. Um, what I started to discover is that these were these were talking about things that were really fascinating to me. They, they were talking about politics, and, and I didn't really know what philosophy was at the time, but they were talking about that. They were talking about ecology. They were talking about questions about humanity and what makes us what we are. And um, as I grew older, I sort of kept with the genre. Um, and, I mean, really, the... Like in terms of the novels, uh, films in, in their own way, but in terms of the novels, there, I've, I've heard it said that science fiction novels are some of the last novels of ideas. Mm. Um, hmm. And I, honestly, they've just been really formative to my own intellectual pursuits. I I'd honestly don't know that I'd be a teacher if I even would have gone to college if they hadn't sparked some interest in in some of the kinds of kinds of questions that that you know we ought to be asking the kinds of ethical and philosophical and theological questions um they were all kind of first posed for me in uh in science fiction um so and, and imparted a lot of values to me that i still have today um so yeah i think that's kind of the long and the short uh of it yeah i um one of the things you said there got me thinking i several years ago uh, read a some sociological study that showed that people who are in academia who are like sort of first generation college students themselves but ended up like teaching in academia I am a, a, an example of this um, often they find their way there because of things like pop culture like rock music and, and comic books and science fiction is it something that engages the imagination at a certain age that puts them on a road they might not have been on you know what i mean and so um someone like me clearly i never read anything but comic books growing up right and um uh and monster movies and, and that sort of thing but somehow that was the the entry point to me into the path that i'm at uh, on teaching faulkner and whatnot so yeah i never got to do the monster movies um as a little christian homeschooled kid that was never allowed um <laughs> i do now but 
but you know, uh, it was kind of interesting. Star Trek is this, you know, it's this the original, especially, was considered safe, right? Yeah. So it was, it, it was this. Um, I hesitate to use the word, but but a gateway drug. In a yeah. Sense, oh right? no, no, it, absolutely. It, yeah. it sort of draws it, like you said, it engages the imagination. I think yeah. that's what what did it for me. And, and when people um, who thought it was safe were probably mistaken, I mean that was rather radical. Oh yeah. Um, politically and and uh, and socio- socially socially that was pretty radical for its time. I mean it. A little sexist with Kirk, you know, finding the hot alien of the week that you know he would hook up with on, on we'll the planet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll get to that later. Um, but yeah, but uh, the 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 political world that it imagined was quite progressive and and and, and almost revolutionary for the time. So it's one of those ways to kind of sneak, um, like you said, ideas into uh, someone's life who, life who maybe not as ready for it or even willing to accept it. Um, do you teach any uh, sci-fi? Right. Yeah, um, in my uh, in my my last teaching position, I had um, had an opportunity to teach in 1984 once. Mm. Um, I taught Brave New World uh, three times, I think. So a couple of dystopians, and then um, for the past two years, I I had proposed um, and was able to teach a, 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 a an elective class that I built myself on science fiction from a Christian perspective. So we went through eight to 10 novels, some short stories, a couple films, a couple television episodes, that kind of thing. So, so, uh, I've done, a, um, I've been not only enjoying it, but teaching it conceptually for, for a couple years now to high schoolers. Yeah. The, um, for the listener who's listening to this, um, I have this episode I'm recording with Carter, and in a couple of days, you'll hear it a couple of weeks later, uh, I'm recording another uh, sci-fi episode with uh, someone else named Megan Von Bergen, and uh, and she teaches a sci-fi class too. Um, so I think a lot of, I want to get into some pedagogical questions um, at some point. This might be a moment I can sneak one at. I didn't, I didn't prepare you for this, but what are some pedagogical goals you have uh, in teaching this sort of material? Which some people might see as simply entertainment or, or trivial pop culture. That's a great question. Yeah, um, my proposed sort of goals for that class, um, and yeah, there's one of those questions comes out of nowhere. So I'm, of course, my mind's blanking. Um, um, on one hand, one of the things I really wanted to impart was. Um, thinking creatively um and that may sound strange but but one of the things that comes up a lot in science fiction novels is it's this ability to imagine the possibilities right it's this it's this uh, ability to to take what we have now to take our circumstances now and imagine where we might be if things continue along this way or if they go down a different path um so one of the things i wanted to do was get students to think about where we might end up to think about our current situation in those terms one of the things that i found um that that was interesting uh, and okay so so you're probably familiar with the idea that the church is 20 years behind pop culture right Uh, that seems about right (laughs) yeah um well i'd say in, in more intellectual terms things like ethics it's often behind as well yeah um so one of the things i was thinking is okay we've got scientists we have um philosophers we've got people thinking about all kinds of um very unique challenges coming up in the world in the world ahead genetic engineering cloning um artificial intelligence transhumanism all these kinds of questions even the idea of of extensive space travel right right and i don't know that i've ever read a a 
theologian that actually talks about those things, who actually imagines what the ethical implications or, or answers to those questions might be. So one of my big goals was to say, okay, here are some questions that we aren't even asking. What might the answers look like? Um, the other thing I wanted to do was was to think about it in terms of kind of a prophetic literature, right? Um, science fiction does something a little different than than many other fields. Many other fields, you know, what I'm into, theology, for example, theology tends to look to the past to answer the questions of the present. Uh, science fiction tries to look at the future to answer the questions of the present. And so even though much of it is secular, um, uh, I, I really wanted to, to say, hey, let's look at the process. Let's look at the process of a person imagining what the future might look like uh, and, and using that to critique and to um, form our present moment. Um, and, and so that was another constructive goal. And, and then attached to that is I wanted some students, this is a Christian school I was teaching, to think about um, how they might produce good cultural products themselves because there's not a lot of good Christian science fiction, to be perfectly honest with you. We, we kind of... Uh, there's just not. So I, I wanted them to think about why that is. Why Why is it that... How can we create good cultural artifacts? Well, so. uh, a persistent theme and, and concern of this show is just what you're talking about, the sort of lack of a Christian imagination, or the lack in the Christian imagination. And in some circles, obviously, there are people who do it well, but uh, I've, we've had entire episodes about the Christian you know, film industry and that sort of thing. And so this is yet another iteration of that. And so I think you're absolutely right. And therefore, I think that material like this and horror like i'm lucky enough this is sort of a fantasy class i get to teach a horror film class this semester i'm very excited i mean i didn't think that would ever happen right and uh but uh i feel like material like that though um does kind of engage the imagination and then require the student to think about the world in ways uh in ways that it is not at this moment right and and that is a that's an ethical activity and i think that um, that sci-fi is a perfect avenue uh, to do that in, and I think that's that's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to get a little bit somewhat concrete in this episode, uh, talking about actual books and movies and such. Um, I think it'll be helpful in order to do that, though, to have something of a brief history of the genre to work from. I, I mean, I assume most people are aware of these things, but uh, let's talk about a broad timeline for the genre just in case. Uh, ultimately, I wonder if we can even come up with some sort of taxon taxonomy of the genre. So uh, where would you begin this? Yeah, that's a uh, really great question. And um, um, I consulted some of my uh, some of my notes for my class, and, and I think I can make this brief, so I'm going to try. <laughs> Um, not to belabor too much. Um, some have argued that there's a lot of precedence for science fiction way back. I mean, as far back as we have literature, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, just because science fiction is really answering the question of what it means to be human. Um, and that's a question back to Gilgamesh. So, I mean, sure. you know, so if you're, if you're getting it down to that basic question, well, that's all of our literary tradition, really. Um, you know, there are other texts in the middle ages and stuff that start to get there but i'd say that the really defining point that the, the moment where we get true science fiction is also probably the moment where we get true horror which would coincide with your interest and that's with um mary shelley's frankenstein mm -hmm. it's really i think the source text is the grandmama of uh of uh science fiction um because it's dealing with the consequences of scientific advancement it's 
Um, it has a protagonist who's consciously turning to scientific experimentation. It's not just about fantastical elements, right? People t- traveling around the moon or something on on a balloon. It's it's actually sort of imagining real, uh, plausible situations, right? And right. and how that affects a person's humanity. Um, from there, you move to a couple obvious fathers: Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Those sure. are the big names there. Um, you also have another guy by the name of Hugo Gernsback. Um, he was the first sort of creator of the science fiction magazine and a roughly contemporary to, to Wells. Um, huh. But uh, I think focusing on Vernon Wells, you really see the formative trajectories of the genre and, and kind of the central debate of the genre, too. So when you talk about a taxonomy, you have this dis- discussion um, or this, I should say, argument or debate between hard and soft science fiction. Um, hard science fiction being more scientifically plausible. Things like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is Jules Verne, right? Um, he describes a submarine in a way that would actually work, right? right? He, 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 it's technologically plausible in our moment. Um, that's, that's what we'd call hard sci-fi. And then in soft sci-fi, you have H.G. Wells, who's really just kind of um, using it as a social critique, what, what we're talking about today. So um, in H.G. Wells, uh, I remember in Time Machine, um, at the very beginning, it says that he adjusted the quartz rod and pulled it and traveled through time. And it's like, wait, <laughs> you didn't describe any process by which this is plausible. Yes. It's just like, oh, yeah, it just works, right? I pull this lever and I go forward on this lever and I go back, Tr- right? Trust me, folks. Yeah. Just trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be the best time I've seen it for it. <laughs> Uh, um, um, well, can I pause you? <laughs> Let me interrupt just for a second there. The um, going back to genre, you're talking about Frankenstein, and yeah. and how that I think can be seen both and legitimately as horror and as um, sci-fi, and I think you're getting at some of the slipperiness of genre in general, not just as it's applied to. Um, this specific genre of sci-fi that we're talking about today, but genre is something that is almost entirely in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and, uh, and this is one. And so I'm going to show alien to my class this semester. Right. Um, and I'm going to show it as a horror film. Right. But I'm going to talk about it today in this episode as a, as a sci-fi film. And, and I feel like there's something about, um, um, our quest to categorize things that is is problematic right and and the idea of creating a genre for this kind of uh for scientific uh exploration that deals with scientific exploration carries with it its own difficulties and so i want to kind of acknowledge that from the beginning to talk about these are some loose borders that we're talking about here yeah i'd absolutely agree um and and that's why it's funny when um, folks will debate the, the relative merits of different kinds of science fiction. Yeah. It's this intramural fanboy debate about, oh. you know, about, it, well, if it's not scientifically plausible, it's just fantasy. <laughs> well, it's not quite. Fantasy is something different. Um, but, you know, someone like Philip K. Dick, uh, to, to sort of jump ahead a little bit, he's soft science fiction. Sure. He gives us zero explanation of any of his ideas. However, I still think it's science fiction because it's tied to imaginable situations. Sure. It's tied to things that even if the exact thing he's proposing doesn't seem plausible, the situation, the context does seem plausible, even I, if he doesn't explain it. But I think you're absolutely right. The borders are blurry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read a, an essay. I think it was an introduction to a book by Neil Gaiman. And, and he mentioned in there that there was a time when there was kind of a debate about whether to call it speculative fiction. People like 
preferred that term and science fiction had been so well established i think it just sort of won out based on comfort (laughs) more than anything else i think um but yeah that's what what we're talking about here is it's not necessarily the plausibility of something that makes it science fiction you're the hg wells is a perfect example of that um and so yeah then that's where the genre starts to subdivide into into very interesting um and interesting things um i cut you off though right around uh the turn of the century here though <laughs> no, no problem. Yeah, that was a great, great uh, segue there. Um, so, what we find, I think, is that, and this is this is kind of just me and my sense of things, not in the historical analysis. But my sense is that the people who are reading Verne's and Wells were typically the teenage boys. Let's face it; they, these were considered adventure stories. I'm not sure science fiction was really considered a genre um, proper, or or was just becoming that at the time. Um, and so the next logical place we go at the beginning of the 20th century is the pulps. Mm. Um, science fiction takes a lowbrow turn, you might say, um, and and we get into the pulp the pulp fiction area. So um, Edgar Rice Burroughs is probably the monumental example here. Yeah. Um, at, at this point, I'll, I'll take a moment to note that um, John Carter of Mars is my namesake. Oh, is that um, right? <laughs> That's right. My name is uh, my middle name is John. I'm Carter John. My parents had three kids with C names, and they my dad loved John Carter Mars, and they liked both names. And like, well, let's just switch them. That is so <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. So I, I mean, uh, uh, science fiction was written in the stars for me. Too. Yeah. Well, I got to ask you then about the movie, which I didn't see. The movie was widely panned. Um, and and did you see it? I saw. Yes, I did see it. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I'm interested in it is that Michael Shabon, the writer that I, 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 a writer that I really enjoy, he wrote the script for that. He's someone. He's a, a novelist. He's high literature novelist who has this real love for popular cultures, and so he loved the John Carter stories. And so he wrote the screenplay for this Disney adaptation called Just Called John Carter. I think some of its problem was the name was really generic. Um, not to disparage you but uh <laughs> but to call a movie john carter uh i don't think anyone knew what to expect john carter of mars might have played better however right. i did not see the movie um so uh, all right <laughs> okay yeah no so so pulp fiction is fun but and i like i love pulp fiction i've read a lot of lovecraft and robert e howard and all these guys but um but it's very tropey i mean you yeah. get the I mean, it's and 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 this actually will tie in with a question we're going to have a little bit later about sexism. I think because what what we get with the Pulp Fiction is, um, um, you know, you get your Princess Leia style bikini clad women <laughs> being saved by the all American astronaut or, or you know, John Carter being transmogrified to Mars and fighting with swords and and against green aliens and junk like that so really this becomes sort of the magazine stuff of the earliest 20th century and it's of course purely marketed to teenage boys um because you know that's what they want to read i guess yeah um, so it was fun stuff but it wasn't really serious <clears throat> you do get some serious work though i don't want to comp- say that uh, serious science fiction is completely off the map so just to drop a couple names you've got um it was mentioned on facebook actually by todd peddler um we've got capix r-u-r mm. um ross's universal robots right um you've got uh fritz lang's metropolis popping up around this time you've got um zemyatin's we which is just is a dystopian novel um and then even in brave new world pops up in 1932 so that's still fairly early these were fairly serious efforts um but tended to be very dystopian and bleak so you've got the pulps on one side which are 
you know, all just action adventure, blockbuster movie kind of fair, and then you have the dystopian, bleak um, sort of thing going on. Uh, now, I think those dystopian bent that probably has something to do, and you would know this more than me, but it probably has something to do with sort of a parallel literary struggle going on. You've got people like T.S. Eliot, you've got people like Kafka sort of wrestling with modernity, um, same kind of anxiety with science and technology that you see with Shelley. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of being channeled into the serious science fiction of the time. That's why it's so, it tends to be so dystopic is there's this anxiety there. Um, as you get into the late thirties though, it shifts and you get a much more optimistic, hard science fiction coming around. Um, this is nostalgically, I should say called the golden age of science fiction. Um, <laughs> Editor of Astounding Science Fiction, John W. Campbell Jr., wanted to move the genre from the pulpy stuff to serious. So he took guys like Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, etc., you know, a uh, list more of, of, of those kinds of guys, among others. Um, and what he encouraged these guys to do is um, he encouraged them to have scientifically plausible stories that are serious stories that will appeal not only to kids, but also to adults. And it worked. Um, between Asimov and Clark and Heinlein and a host of others, they really brought respectability to the genre in a way that it hadn't been before. Um, it's very... All these guys are very much sort of your scientific positivist type guys. I mean, uh. I think they were atheists to a man. Um, and so it has a certain it has a certain ideological bent to it that's very rational, that's very... Um, um, it's very rational and it and it's it's uh, very optimistic in that sort of scientific naturalism op, uh, kind of way, right? The myth of um, progress is sort of an, assu right. an assumption in in this book, right? Right, right. Human rationality and technology are going to get us where we need to be, kind of a thing, right? right. Whether it's evolution or whether it's um, a better society or whatever. Right. This is about the time Gene Roddenberry comes out with Star Trek too, right? Uh, well, I guess he's a. No, I'm sorry, that's the '60s. I'm jumping ahead. Um, but so in the 30s, we've got these guys popping up. Yeah. And they bring an optimism. Um, but uh, to, to sort of get towards the end here, then we get into what's called the new wave. This comes in the post-war period, 50s and 60s. Now, this is has less of an emphasis on accuracy scientifically and more on the literary form. And this is where guys like Philip K. Dick, Frank Herbert, Ursula Le Guin. Mm. Um, these, these guys are all part of this movement where they're more focused on society. They're focused on political and social questions. They're focused on the effect of things upon humanity and, and not just utopian or dystopian, but kind of looking at the tension between those two ideologies. Um, uh, and they're really starting to make it more of a literary form um, than it had been before. Um, so moving from the new wave guys, which also has a very postmodern sort of edge to it, yeah, I bunch, particularly which, with like Philip K. Dick. I mean, that, he's oh, sort yeah. of a, a major postmodern figure, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And even yeah. Thomas Pynchon. Uh, I mean, he gets. I mean, he's a, a literary figure who gets associated with sci-fi. Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, a lot of these uh, mainline, um, mainline, main, mainstream literary figures, uh, high art, um, are experimenting in postmodern ways with this kind of uh, speculative genre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Vonnegut's another great example. Um, uh, and then you get to the 80s, and the 80s brings a really interesting wave. I think um, film, really, the film 
science fiction really comes into its own in, in the 80s. Um, you get the cyberpunk stuff mm. like, by William Gibson. Shout out to Nathan Gilmore. I know he, he loves, loves that. Gibson, yeah. <laughs> um, you've got anime like Akira. I don't know if you've seen Akira, but that's a very interesting... Um, I mean, anime in general is usually a very interesting take on technology and the environment and capitalism. Do you know um, a lot about? Matrix. Do you know a lot about anime? Is that a, a, an interest of yours? Because because we we, um, had, we had a request yeah, for a show about <laughs> we had a request for a show about that. Maybe I'll bring you back for that. So yeah. um, all right, I, I've I've gotten into about half a dozen different films, but not not seriously. Yeah, more of a Kurosawa guy when it comes to Japanese art. But. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you got that. You got the Matrix. You got the Terminator. Um, so you got, um, you got uh, some of those same strains, really. And then that carries into the modern, the contemporary period. I actually, uh, admittedly, have not. I've watched more contemporary science fiction than I've read. I haven't read a lot of the novels. Sure. But m- my understanding is that the major strains are still there: technological anxiety, literary, social, political storytelling, and hard scientific sci-fi. Those are kind of your three basic strains and they all seem to be doing well in their own ways um carried into the present yeah so. and well and just uh, this is we'll get into fandom uh later but um sure. with any kind of uh, marginal genre I, I don't know if this is a marginal genre or not but it's it's definitely a a, a boutique genre it, it's a, a certain kind <laughs> of person is drawn to this and it's not for everyone like mysteries are the same way and within those genres you tend to have these sort of turf battles about people who are really demanding about the type of mystery novel i mean there's a, a very specific kind of right, plot right. that they're looking for and with the hard and soft sciences you're talking about um and yeah and so i i and i think someone like philip k dick uh who we'll talk more about later doesn't necessarily fit because you, you categorize them as soft sci-fi right yeah, it doesn't. Uh, and whereas someone like asimov who maybe hasn't aged as well in term his work may not have aged as well as Dix has, um, uh, maybe because it was too specifically tailored to a, a smaller uh, kind of interest group. But um, that's uh, for a later part of the show. Um, you said so much there that I will never catch up to all the cool the, the opening. I hope I didn't go through it too fast. No, no, no. There were so many cool things. Um, so I would actually wonder if. First of all, right back at the beginning, if Gulliver's Travels might be another place to kind of begin, particularly with the idea of social critique built into it. I mean, because that's exactly what Jonathan Swift was doing in that novel. So um, the, yep, the yep. land of the Whinnams and, and the Rob Dignagians. I mean, this is sort of... Lilliputians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is sort of uh, social science fiction, and at least fantasy literature, um, for a very particular political purpose. I mean, he was criticizing English society of the time and um and so i'm wondering um I, that's the first thing i started out uh, but from the roots of it then frankenstein it's almost I, I i'm having a hard time thinking of something that isn't interested in society's contours uh in, in sci-fi are there like i it's i feel like it's almost intrinsic in the genre itself based on what you're saying it seems so natural and i would even argue Going into the pulps, I think that there is a, a real kind of social critique going on there. Um, I have a friend from grad school who I, I should bring on to talk about this. He actually considers pulp fiction a form of modernism. I mean, this is for him a uh, it is a it is a modernism, and um, and so for him the the generic boundaries of that um, magazine driven kind of cheap fiction form is actually doing. Um, 
social critique itself, right? And, and to us, I mean, of course, it's it's very sexist and a lot of it, and it's a lot of it seems icky and it doesn't seem like you're reading Hemingway, right? But um, their argument can be made, and I, and I think compellingly that it is also doing a very important kind of social work right alongside the serious dystopias um, that you mentioned with um, with Orwell and. Um, and uh, Brave New World and that sort of thing. So I, I just feel like uh, listening to you talk, I mean, there is so much <laughs> just intrinsically um, uh, within the genre that it's almost inescapable that it's talking about society as it exists, even as it's presenting, it's imagining societies that don't exist. Uh, and I, I just think that's so interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, on the pulp note there, if I could just make a quick comment. Yeah, um, go ahead. One of the things you see in those those stories where you've got, like I said, um, you kind of got the uh, the astronaut saving the bikini-clad damsel in distress on an alien planet, right? Um, in those kinds of stories, those pulp stories, there always seems to be this intrinsic assumption that the human and human male, if we're honest, is superior to everybody else that he's meeting, right? Whether the aliens are a lot like humans or whether they're, they're um, utterly unlike humans, the humans are always sort of better somehow um and and i i think i mean you get kind of this um you sometimes get this kind of well what i'm trying to to, to imagine here this kind of go get them pull you up by your bootstraps frontiersman uh sort of um feeling from from the characters right it's it's almost kind of like this I've been watching Mad Men recently with my wife. It's okay. kind of this, you know, sort of late capitalism, like you know, I am, I have the solution in my Randian universe kind of thing, right? <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm the Ubermensch kind of figure, right? Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's implicit, as you were saying, in a lot of the pulp stuff. Yeah, and also, I mean, just generically, almost in the fact, I mean, those are great observations, and alongside of that, in the if you're doing a sort of a market analysis, a material print culture reading of, of that stuff, um, I feel like it's geared at a, uh, gosh, how am I going to say this? this it's lowbrow literature, right? That is, um, because in its very nature, sticking a thumb in the nose of polite society, <laughs> right? And that's so true. I yeah. think that's a political act in and of itself. And, and I think uh, Leslie Fiedler, I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this on some podcast before, he has a, an essay called uh, Two Ends Against the Middle or Both Ends Against the Middle. I forget what it's, which one it is. Um, but it's a uh, basically about the comics industry and how, and he wrote about it, it has a lot in common with highbrow art in that both of them make um, sort of middle-brow, kind of mainstream, capital-driven, capitalist-driven um, art forms uh feel the presence of class uh, and, and which is something it doesn't want to do and so he's actually <laughs> no <doubt. laughs> I, don't, I don't know that he's a fan of comics but he he, he appreciates the uh, the dangerous uh, image that it presents for the middle brow and, and, and I, I find that essay endlessly fascinating I have to go back and read that again it's been a while but but yeah I, and I feel like the pulps um, and, and included in that are horror writers like H.P. Lovecraft and, and, and that sort of thing. It's all very offensive to kind of polite society, which is in and of itself a political activity. Um, yeah, it's always trying to unsettle, right? Yes. Even, even, even utopian, whether it's utopian, dystopian, or somewhere in the middle, science fiction is is almost always trying to unsettle people 
in the present time mm -hmm. um, and, and move them towards something else. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes sense that it would be, I mean, it would be most offensive to those who are most comfortable. Right. <laughs> so you, to speak. And, and the last thing I wanted to bounce off of from when you were talking, and you'd mentioned Asimov's Foundation books earlier. Um, I, I've read the first one, and I, I just love that book. I have the whole, it's right next to me here, this whole, the whole volume collection of all of the novels. Great in series, one. yeah. And, and I, I um, that... It, it it seems at first as if it casts doubt on the kind of heroic view of progress because you have this Harry Seldon character who is um, predicting the downfall of society because of its own whatever opulence and, and, and laziness, basically. And, and so he's setting up in advance this chain of events that will go tens of thousands of years into the future um, to rebuild the empire later on. And so, like, Asimov is utterly convinced that under the right guidance, um, like intellectual scientific guidance, society can perfect itself, right? Uh, and, of course, then you have this this figure, this mule, is that his name, I think, uh, who comes in. Yeah, the and, mule. <laughs> <laughs> who's unpredictable, right? And then right. And he causes trouble. But, uh, but I, I feel like um, Asimov's really optimistic view of society is also a political act. I mean, he's, um, he's a very famous public intellectual, um, as much as he is a novelist. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just in a, a used bookstore earlier today, just poking around and I noticed, uh, Asimov's commentary on Shakespeare in the Bible <laughs> the, and the Bible. Yeah. I the guy had an opinion about everything. I cannot believe the number of words he's written. Like if you just the fiction alone, and then you count, if you look at all the nonfiction sort of um, esoteric things he wrote, absurd. it's unbelievable. It's like, I don't, I, I, I know. <laughs> I, I've seen pictures of him giving interviews. He must've been typing off to the side while he was giving interviews. It's unbelievable. The, pro, <laughs> the prolific yeah. nature of that man. So yeah, now, foundation's an interesting, an interesting case uh, example. I was, I was wondering, I was thinking about using it as a recommendation earlier, but I, I don't think I'm going to, but, but it is, I do recommend people reading that, that yeah. series. Um, what's so interesting there is how he frames the, the sort of advancement or preservation of this, better society um you know they think that they they start out ostensibly spoiler alert they start out ostensibly thinking oh um you know we're going to be putting together this encyclopedia we're going to preserve knowledge through the dark ages and then people can read it and form a better society and that is entirely deceptive it's just a front and the real the real strength of the foundation is the fact that they don't have natural resources they don't have um, a, a sort of a, a materialistic strength. They right. simply have technological and scientific innovation. That's right. it. That is their sole resource. And that they're and, far away from everyone, and they're not. And worth... they're far away from everyone. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. Um, so they they overcome everybody else simply by being smarter. Yeah. So it's almost like a Revenge of the Nerds scenario. It's like Asimov's <laughs> dream of domination, like. Um, uh, we nerds will conquer you eventually. I promise. <laughs> it, it, it's and it's very Hegelian as well, in that you have these sort of um, cycles of history. Uh, maybe it's Marxist, yeah. and um, you have these sorts of the the. There's like a priestly class that, for Harry Seldon's plan, is necessary at a certain time, um, and then it gives way to this sort of. Uh, I forget the order of these. Uh, there's the mayors and there's the merchants. The merchants. The, yeah, it gives way yeah. to the merchants, right? And then that gives way to something else. But all of these things are necessarily, and all of them think that they are the end of all, right? They they think they're the culmination of history rather right. than just exactly. a, a step along the way. Uh, and and so, um, at, that long view of that book is just 
really fascinating to me. And also, I mean, just the, the pure optimism about scientific knowledge and progress is, is very oh, yeah. interesting, although not uncomplicated. It isn't a, a polemic about is not Neil deGrasse Tyson we're talking about here, right? This is no, uh, no. this is much smarter than Dawkins that. Dawkins or Ditchkins or whatever, yeah. <laughs> Ditchkins, oh, you know the word Ditchkins, yes. Um, yes. <laughs> excellent. Um, well, the the key term of this show is uh, social conscience, right? Right. Um, and going back to, I mean, and it's like I said, it's always a part of science fiction. Even the films, I'm thinking of the big bug movies. The, this is kind of B-movie material in the 50s. <laughs> right. Our direct- came from yeah, yeah, but they're all like uh, a, a direct. They're directly related to a social fear about nuclear power, right? And, and so, yeah. um, like it's like I said, it's built into this genre. Um, the Cold War was good for science fiction. Is ab- I'm say. Oh, it was great for science fiction and Rocky movies, right? And so, yeah, um, so, <laughs> or it was terrible maybe for those. But um, uh, so, what are some important ways that this genre? tries to correct and guide society and maybe here we could talk about some major figures and, and works um, as we can we just talked a little bit about Asimov what are some other ways yeah I thought I'd um, I thought here this is a I love this um, I've got a lot here I, I think I want to what I want to do is, is kind of if you don't mind go general be start general sure. and then sort of work down to three specific examples that I, I, I have um, so as I was saying earlier, science fiction acts as a type of prophetic literature. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing science fiction really has to do, whether it's going to be hard or soft, is take stock of what's going on in the present, socially, politically, scientifically, and technologically, um, and then somehow extrapolate that out into the future. Um, sometimes it shows where we do well, a utopic vision like Star Trek. Um, other times it shows what happens if we don't change our course, you know, the dystopias, um, 1984 and Brave New World. Um, and then, of course, later you get the, like I said, the folks who are neither dystopic, utopic, they they reflect on the present at, uh, a little closer to how it actually is, right? Mm-hmm. Reflecting the complexities of it. I think Phil K. Dick's really good at this. Um, reflecting the complexities of our moment um, and of, of anyone's present. Um, so... You can get science fiction that has little social point, like you said, bug movies. Yes, they're responding to, to social things, but they're not—they're not highbrow. They're not trying to make a serious point necessarily, so much as you know, entertaining. Um, but at its best, at its best, I'd say what science fiction is trying to do in terms of social conscience is challenging us to do better, challenging us to be better, whether that's dystopic or utopic. Um, and like I said earlier, it's looking to the future to do that rather than looking to the past. It's saying, here's where we're going to end up if we do this. Here's where we're going to end up if we don't do this. Um, and it's posing the question or posing the answers to questions we haven't even considered, right? It's posing answers to questions that we maybe haven't even thought about. I think that's really, um, to sidebar for a second, I think that's really in- uh, important for, for the fields of the STEM fields, especially ah. like scientific um, fields. I, I, I am not really good at any of those. I'm not a mathematician. I, I'm total rubbish when it comes to the physical sciences. Wish I wasn't, but I am. Um, but my sense is that oftentimes, and and I would love it if some of um, some scientist folks would would write in and tell me to, that I'm wrong because I would I would love to be wrong about this. But the sense I've gotten is that oftentimes scientists don't always think about the consequences, perhaps mm-hmm. ethically, of their of their whatever field they're probing into um 
there's always a sense where we need to just keep pushing the boundaries wherever we're capable of going we should go and, and I, I agree with that um, but I wonder how often that happens without you know that sort of a leaping before you look scenario where we go into these areas without really thinking through what the end result might be so the classic example is go back to the Cold War the atomic bomb right mm, yes we're going to generate all this power with the with with the splitting of the atom. We're capable of doing this thing, but it's it's not an unmixed blessing by any stretch, right? Um, so, well, so I think it, Jurassic yeah, Park. I, I'm thinking of Jurassic Park. I mean, it's almost the <laughs> right, premise right. of that movie, right? Um, yeah, if we need Jeff Goldblum to come in and and smirk around at us. Yeah, yes, yeah, smug Jeff Goldblum in his <laughs> chaos there. Uh, my, well, Michael Crichton's an interesting uh, science fiction author, but I don't want to talk about him or complain about him right now, so I'm going to leave that where <laughs> okay. it's lying. Um, Se- sequel, part two. Maybe. Okay, yeah. Centrally, centrally, what I really see science fiction doing is asking what it means to be human. That, that's what I f- think the genre is doing. And you were talking about taxonomy earlier. Yeah. Um, it's asking what it means to be human, but it's doing it with a real-world connection the kind of real world connection that fantasy does not always possess. So there's your sort of a not entirely clear, somewhat vague dividing line between the two. Yeah. You've got the real world connection, science fiction that you wouldn't have in Lord of the Rings, for example. I was just thinking Lord of the Rings. Like I I know Lord of the Rings isn't sci-fi. Right. Um, And I, but, but beyond that is more difficult to, (laughs) to to describe why it's not, but you just know it's not, there is a divide between fantasy and sci-fi. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So um, to maybe get into some, some examples, um, I actually have a few examples, but I want to start with, um, we, were talking, we were just talking about Asimov. So I, I thought I mean, it would be great to transition from Foundation to iRobot. I don't know if you've read that collection of short stories. I have not. Um, it's not anything like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that. It's funny because I have the book and I taught it to my students. Um, and it's got Will Smith on the cover, and it's got the tagline of the movie. And the first thing I said when we got into it is, I'm like, guys, don't expect anything like the cover. It's a lie. <laughs> because it's nothing like that. It's it's a very cerebral book. Um, it's, it's sort of asking what happens when mechanical intelligence, robotic intelligence, um, evolves, really. Um, so it asks a kind of question of, of can a machine be sentient self-aware? Can it be considered human yeah. in some sense? It's an implied question, but but um, and that sounds outlandish. But there are theorists, whether um, whether they're in the computer sciences, whether they're in biotechnology, um, biochemistry, whatever, who are working on making machines that do just that, working on machines that have consciousness. Hmm. Um, so again, there's a, there's those ethical questions, but but it's asking what it means to be human. It's asking that of our president. It's, it's doing that by taking what we have and saying what happens when we extrapolate it out. So couple couple other examples, uh, uh, I think clearer and more comprehensive examples of how it's how science fiction maybe has corrected or guided society. Um, so first, I, I'm a big Trekkie, so I'm going to go Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, um, obvious example. Um, you're watching Star Trek, and what do you see on the bridge of the Enterprise in the 1960s when civil rights, um, Cold War, all this is going on? You've got um, you've got a Japanese pilot. I mean, World War II had happened what 15 years before, right? <laughs> right. Right. Um, you've got a Russian navigator, um, 
sitting right behind the captain so you see her every single shot uh, every single shot of the bridge you've got a black woman ohura which is a, a significant i think oh yeah um, cultural statement just that in and of itself um well in the interracial, and there's an interracial kiss at one point that it was just absolutely groundbreaking right so and, yeah that's actually i was going to bring that up when we talk a little bit later because um the ohura character while star trek has a complicated relationship with sexism the O'Hara character is a counterbalance to some of the sexism we see elsewhere in the show so I actually want to come back to that if we can great no great Um, but Gene Roddenberry was posing this idea of diversity right Um, there's a a Vulcan thing in in Star Trek called infinite diversity and infinite combinations Mm. it's like the the basis for Vulcan philosophy right Um, I think that's a really kind of fantastic philosophical idea right that you have all these people in the world and in star trek all these people in the universe right they're very different they have different ways of looking at life they have different ways of approaching um questions and concerns and problems we're not going to automatically disbar or alienate or demonize people because they're different rather we're going to accept them as best we can within obvious boundaries of not killing us or whatever, um, but we're going to try to accept their differences and, and try to accept who they are intrinsically and not just disbar that automatically. Um, and obviously that's making a huge social statement to the, to, to, to the time. And and a really great example of this is later in Star Trek history when um, Whoopi Goldberg wanted to be on The Next Generation. Right. And she keep she kept bugging them about it, right? But she was a big star at the time, and Roddenberry was kind of like, why, right? Like, <laughs> he just kind of kept... Like, she doesn't want to be on Star Trek, right? She doesn't want to be on our, our, our little show. Um, she finally set up an appointment with him and said, why don't you want me to be on Star Trek? And Roddenberry said, well, you're a huge star. I just don't know why you want to be on our show. And she told him a story where she said... Um, I, I was a little girl, and I ran into uh, the kitchen saying, Mommy, Mommy, I saw a black lady on television, and she wasn't a maid. <laughs> and Ron Verrier said, we'll write you a role right yeah. then. Be- because th- that that expression that Roddenberry did, that somewhat risky expression on television in the 60s, I think, that expression of diversity challenged social mores and pushed people to accept something that they really weren't ready to accept yet. Um, it pushed people or challenged people to, to see the world at, as it could be, right? Yeah. As it could be. So that's one example. I've got a couple more if you, if you want to respond at all. Uh, oh, no, no. Keep going. That's good. I'll let you. I'll let you uh, take the lead here. Okay, so diver- uh, that, that Gene Roddenberry diversity. I also want to talk my favorite science fiction novel, Frank Herbert's uh, Dune. Um, Dune is a really big novel. It's kind of comparable to Lord of the Rings, but it's it's fan- uh, fascinating and I think relevant right now um, because it deals with the messianic idea. Mm. Um, Dune has a messiah figure uh, as the central protagonist, um, but one of the things that Dune does is. <laughs> challenges the value of that and kind of like we were talking about with the pulps and i I think this comes up in a lot of science fiction is the hero right the hero figure who's going to save the day and and that's on often sort of a a very uncomplicated role that a figure plays right your luke skywalker or your um your john carter mars or whatever (laughs) right they come in there they take charge they fix the problems um herbert really wants to complicate that and, and and 
Dune does that by by taking this religious idea of a messiah. Um, the, and the protagonist of the book gets caught up in this mythos with this um, sort of zealous uh, group of people who have been oppressed, who have been pushed down, and, and are also deeply religious. And he sort of becomes their messiah figure. Um, the other interesting element to Dune is that he has some a kind of prescience. He can see the f- possible futures, right? Oh. Which is probably other question or a whole other line of thought to talk about but but what's interesting is that he gets to a point where he's seeing these possible futures and he finally gets to a point um he, he what he's trying to do through all, all this time is he's trying to avoid um a loaded word nowadays but he's trying to avoid a jihad ah. he's trying to avoid the people going in his name on the holy war across the universe right and he finally comes to a point in it where he says even if i was to die in this moment this is internal dialogue. He says, even if I was to die in this moment, it would still happen. It, it's become unavoidable. He's yeah. caught up in his, right? He's caught up in, in what's going to happen and he can't do anything to prevent it. Um, so there's this, I think that's a really powerful message um, in any time, but, but 1965, I, and I think it's a powerful right now. I mean, what characterizes our political and social moment better than, um, the one desire for a messiah, and it's not even partisan. I mean, you've got to name drop. You've got your Donald Trump messiahs on one side, but you've got your uh, Barack Obama messiahs on the other side, right? right? That's not even make a. That's not even to make a qualitative comment on how good or bad those people are as as people or as leaders, but but simply to say that um, the messianic figure can very quickly lose control yeah. of people who look to them and and they are dangerous for that reason that is so i think um related to much of what we i don't know if you listened to the trumpism episode from way back um it 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 replies to donald trump it also applied to bernie sanders i feel like you're right i feel like our culture is looking for we just got to put this figurehead in this one office right and that'll fix everything and and the the bernie bros or whoever they whatever i don't really like that term i think it's a little (laughs) stupidly pejorative and and reductive but um and i'm not i'm not one of them at at any rate so i'm not (laughs) i'm not defending myself here but but uh, you know what i'm talking about the 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 bernie acts let's call them um this that is the utter opposite of what he's actually trying to put in place is this sort of centralized kind of figurehead power and yet that's what he's engendering and that is what our society wants right now is a person to come in and fix the problem and 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 it's across the board you're right this is not the problem for any single political persuasion um i i think yeah and you see it with the libertarian um resurgence with the uh, gary johnson right now uh i mean oh, yeah. yep. this is to people think of him as this sort of he's the guy who's going to fix all of washington's problems because he's not of them or something and uh yeah and um yeah and so it's uh i have not read dune i understand that the movie is uh disappointing to people who love the novel um a bit yeah there was a there's a documentary oh someone tried to make a dune movie that was going to be 16 hours long Uh, i forget the guy's name now uh but there's a documentary about that process um and something the 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 director's name and dune uh that guy's dune i forget zaranofsky i forget it wasn't aaron darren oh yeah 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 i've heard of that i've not watched that that is not the name but yeah yeah but so i'll have to look at 
shift. Not, I had not considered that, but that sounds so interesting and so relevant right yeah. now. Uh, another and another one I had that I thought was relevant, and this will maybe transition us to the next question kind of nicely too. Is is Philip K. Dick's uh, Durandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, yes. um, or Bl- Blade Runner to the movie crowd? Yeah. Um, uh, what's really interesting in that book, I think, is, is, to me, the most interesting thing is is the idea of, of how we treat others. Right. That's what he's really focused on throughout that entire book. Is is this idea of empathy, right? Uh, empathy is a, the defining human characteristic. Um, and it, it, it's, I mean, I, I have to say in the book, I don't know, have you read the book or have you just watched the I film? am sad to say Wait. I have not read the book. Um, okay. But... Yeah, that's fine. So so the, the, the book makes a few things, it's a little more complicated in the movie, um, but it starts off with a really on-the-nose statement um, early on, there's this advertisement, and of course, as you know, in PKD, all of the enemies are always these fast corporations, sure, right? The, yeah. So it's the Rosen Company, <laughs> and the Rosen Company produce the androids, and they're trying to get people to immigrate to Mars. And the TV, it says, uh, I've got a quote here. The TV set shouted, "Duplicates the Halkian days of the pre-Civil War Southern states, either as body servants or tireless field hands. The custom-tailored humanoid robot, designed specifically for your unique needs, for you and you alone." given to you on your arrival absolutely free um etc etc so mm. he, he kind of puts it right on the nose there right like yeah. <laughs> he kind of draws you a picture um well whatever it, you it, want to say about their humanity they're slaves and well and that's what roy in the movie um explicitly talks about slavery um and with that context isn't necessarily there uh, it's implied but it, it's not explicit like in the passage you just read and so that actually sheds so much light on that movie so yeah um, yeah, and 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 what's another thing that I really missed that they left out, and I think this is one of the most this is one of the most uh, the hardest moments to read in the book because of of the point it's making. Um, and, and I think this tie this this takes us from sort of this obvious slavery parallel to a much deeper parallel about how we have a tendency to demonize the other, how we tend to demonize um, not just um, people of different races but people who are immigrating whether black or white or brown or whatever um people who we see as um lesser than us so so in the book you have these figures called chicken heads who are basically somewhat like mentally they're not re- mentally retarded but they're they're they have mental challenges due to radioactive fallout right okay. and people call them derog- uh, derisively chicken heads right mm. they're also a subclass so you've got these multiple subclasses of people that normal people don't even care about at all. They show zero empathy towards, which is, of course, the irony of the story, yeah. is that Decker doesn't feel empathy towards these figures that he's killing for not having empathy. <laughs> right? Um, and there's this moment in the book where they retire, um, they kill an android who's a singer. And... Um, they, they, they kill the androids because they're not supposed to leave Mars. For those who haven't, who aren't familiar with the story, these androids leave Mars. They escape to Earth, but they test them for empathy. And when they discover an they discover an android by by testing its empathy um, on Earth, they they um, bounty hunters. I'm doing scare quotes here. Bounty hunters <laughs> scare quotes retire the android, right? Meaning they they you know home away. Yeah. Um, well, that right and, there, though, that yeah. terminology. 
borrows very heavily from Orwell. The, it's, oh, yeah. The, I mean, it's this sort of new speak. Um, obfuscation. Yeah, it, obfuscation. That's a perfect way to put it. So that's that's that tradition carried on in Philip K. Dick right there. But go right, keep going. Yeah, that's a, that's gr- uh, really, really important to this story, I think. Um, but, but he asks himself, on page 135, they do in this android um, who's a, a professional opera singer, right? Okay. Lou, uh, they, they kill her. And... And uh, it's two bounty hunters, and the main one, Rick Deckard, he goes, um, he's saying to the other bounty hunter that he can't do it anymore because he says she was a wonderful singer. The planet could have used her. This is insane. And then a little bit later, he's thinking to himself, and he thinks, she was a really superb singer, he said to himself as he hung up the receiver, his call completed. I don't get it. How can a talent like that be a liability to our society? But it wasn't the talent he told himself; it was she herself. So he's having that realization there that he's demonizing someone. He's he's isolating someone from himself and other people who are quote unquote normal. And but he's recognizing at the same time, our degraded like post-apocalyptic society could use a little beauty in it this person could have actually contributed to who we are but we treat them like garbage and get rid of them because of this thing that we just, we think is lacking in them right so it's really really interesting sort of point that he's making throughout that that novel and it's interesting would you i, I had a question it says three words philip k dick and we're already on it so i won't even ask the question um but uh it, it you mentioned earlier how the bad guys are always sort of corporate entities. Uh, there's this sort <laughs> yeah. of, and, and there's clearly a, a critique of, of late capitalism in Philip K. Dick. Absolutely. Uh, and, strong one. Yeah, strong one. I mean, it's everywhere you see. And honestly, I feel like the the sci-fi that resonates most closely with me is sci-fi like this. I I am suspicious of the kind of myth of progress, the heroic, um, you know, uh, pro- progressive, um, uh, narrative. And so, yeah, exactly. I, I, I totally, that just doesn't resonate with me when I look at what the nuclear bomb did. Um, like I saw, like you mentioned before. And, uh, when I see the movie Blade Runner, for example, that it seems to me more like what progress brings with it is a lot of, incredible achievement and incredible wealth, but built on top of a lot of um, oppressed um, and neglected folks, right? And and so Philip K. Dick really captures that in a way that Asimov doesn't. And I think that this is one reason why probably his work probably is more interesting today than Asimov's for people who aren't sci-fi you know, aficionados. This is maybe a more, I mean, it's existentialist, uh, in, in its, in its nature. Um, the book that yeah. <clears throat> I was going to talk about is Ubik. Have you read Ubik? Um, oh, I have. <clears throat> yeah. I was going to talk about it too. So okay. Well, yeah. And, and to me, I taught it last year for my conspiracy class that I, I had a class on conspiracy theories and, um, uh, we taught Ubik because you know, that neat that is in there a little bit. And, uh, and again, the, there's a, corporate entities that are sort of the the bad guys right and ubic is this sort of product that that changes its uh its its application throughout the the novel it's actually its form and, and what it even is um but and he's ubiquitous it's ubiquitous <laughs> like right <advertising>. yes <laughs> yeah well when you watch blade runner that's what you see is gigantic screens is the ubiquity of right. advertising um uh i'm sure frederick jameson wrote about blade runner in postmodernism uh it's been a while since i've read that but um but yeah, so when I read the book um, Ubik, 
and it's a great plot and it's just trippy and and it's uh and it's fascinating and it's existential but at its heart is uh, this kind of painful reflection on what it really means to be human uh and and i think there's a um a passage i want to talk about i want to read here um there's a so a brief setup for the book you have this person who runs this company of psychics that get um, farmed out to people who need to combat other psychics who are doing um, bad things to their businesses, basically. So he has this sort of cottage industry uh, of, uh, of psychic farmhands, if you will, to, to do certain jobs. And one of his psychics, her psychic ability is nullifying the psychic ability of other psychics, right? And so it, it's this kind of loop, uh, postmodern loop here. But uh, so it's stultifying is the name of it, she gestured. As a survival factor for the human race, Joe said, it's as useful as the psi talents. Psi is psychic. Uh, especially for us norms, um, the anti-psi factor is a natural restoration of ecological balance. One insect learns to fly, so another learns to build a web to trap him. Is that is that the same as no flight? Clams developed hard shells to protect them. Therefore, birds learn to fly the clam up high in the air and drop him on a rock. In a sense, you're a life form preying on the size, and the size are life forms that prey on the norms. That makes you a friend of the norm class. And so, uh, like, in this world of sort of magical ability and, and scientific right. progress, uh, what gets extended is sort of class distinction. I mean... Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Very interesting. And it's capitalized upon, right? And what that does is dehumanize everybody in the process. They just become a category. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that just obsesses Dick in his work. But uh, what, what did you have to say about the, the book? No, yeah, I think you, you really hit on the central concerns of Ubik there. Um, I think uh, maybe in a minute I want to talk about the end a little bit. Um, oh, because yeah. the end, like many Philip K. Dick books, the end leaves you with a number of questions. Um, usually his books end ambiguously and without a clear, without uh, without a sort of clear answer to the pressing question. Right. Um, so I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, did, did you want to talk? Uh, did you want me to talk maybe a little bit more about? Dick, um, yeah, uh, besides, you yeah whatever, okay. yeah. So, so PKD is really interesting because, um, oh man, that guy was obsessed, maybe possessed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he took some he, substances in his life, so. Oh, he <laughs> did. The man, the legend, the nutter butter. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He was, he was um, quite an individual. Um, he was a prolific writer. So, anyone yeah. who hasn't read him, um, he's written double dozens of novels, hundreds of short stories, I think. Um, um, notable themes like we were talking about is uh, uh, authoritarian entities more often than not corporations sometimes governments um, but really central what I think is so interesting and central to PKD is, is his deep paranoia about reality a deep paranoia about whether what we perceive is real or not and that, that comes up in, it's not just Ubik but it's, it's Ubik it's also you know doing a resume of electric sheep and blade runner it, it's a man of the high castle right it's all Absolutely. of these stories yeah um, there's always this underlying sensation that what you're reading about is not really the truth. Um, and he oddly kind of always introduced the twist like halfway through the book. Yeah. And then the rest of the book is sort of playing out what the twist implies. Right. Yeah. Um, and 
based on my sort of incomplete reading of him, I, I kind of think that that's what his whole project is. His whole project is to get the reader to question if what they see is really real. Now, you can take that metaphysically, um, and, and I think that was an important question to him, but I think he also wasn't concerned with it in concrete terms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, are you being deceived? Um, is what you see really real, right? So Ubik's use of, use of advertising, yeah. right? Um, its use of advertising is, is constantly obfuscating what is real um it's the same thing like we were talking about in, in do you dream uh do you Android's dream of electric sheep with the language right they're not assassins or hitmen they're bounty hunters they don't retire them or they don't kill them they retire them right they're not killing people they're killing androids right, right? these are all metaphors to sort of cover up what's really happening right um there are people out there who think the world or, or who want you to think the world is one way when in reality it is another, right? right? That's what PKD is, is all about. Um, so I, I find that so fascinating because I think it's, it's a, it's a really sort of, it's doing an end run around, like you said, that sort of optimistic vision, right? Mm-hmm. Where we all come to some society, rather it's recognizing that there's always going to be people at the top or somewhere close to the top who don't want you to see everything right because if you see everything the whole structure the whole fabric of of society will fall apart and all of a sudden everything will change um and what's most interesting to me though is why he doesn't answer those questions at the ends of these books so i was wondering what maybe you thought about that well i i think it's a really brilliant um sort of edge to his social critiques but what do you make of the fact that he whether we're talking Ubik, Man in the High Castle, whatever, that he leaves that ambiguity. Right. I, in Man in the High Castle, I have not seen the series yet. This is the, the a verse for me. Uh, I've read the book, but I've, not see, I've seen the first episode of the series, but I didn't finish it yet. Um, but I, there's a, um, um, a moment in the book where uh, the Jap, one of the Japanese characters, sort of, he's in San Francisco. There's this fictional San Francisco that he inhabits, right? And then there's a moment in the book where he steps into our reality, where right, the Japanese right. are not running everything. And so he, like, steps out of the pages of his book. Um, and so it's like the book acknowledges that it's a book, right? Which, yeah. to me, is a very kind of – it's a classic postmodern tactic, uh, or, you know, style, ta- stylistic tactic, to kind of question the difference between text and reader uh, and the, the 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 ontological space that we inhabit are not separate for for Philip K Dick and so I feel like spaces that we inhabit um, I feel like when I read the end of this book of, of Ubik, or Ubik, you're pronouncing Ubik. I said Ubik to my class all semester. Maybe I did it wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's supposed to be ubiquity. So yeah, I probably pronounce it wrong. Um, yeah. So uh, at the end of this book, so. Um, the the book begins it opens it's hard to describe the the technological world that he's constructed here um there is a uh technology called half sleep or uh half life half life and once you die they put you in these it's kind of like cryogenics um right right except your consciousness still survives and your loved ones can come talk to you um and through these computer screens and that sort of thing and so um at the end of the book the person who has seemingly won begins to question whether he is also has been in half-life this whole time. Um, is my, right. And so what I'm, the way I read that is I set this down with that giant question and 
the only thing I can think of as a reader is is my reality some sort of dream right, <laughs> right? right. Um, it's not the re- it's a, it's a much more interesting version of the matrix frankly um is, or, or inception yeah. Uh, yeah which i still haven't seen I, my students kill me about that i still haven't seen inception and they think you, what? You, it, it, i don't know if christopher nolan directly borrowed from ubic i won't make that claim but they are awfully alike <laughs> oh i i gotta see it uh, i it's you know yeah kids you know you, you miss things oh, yeah. and, and so and then once you miss it it's hard to catch up to it but anyway yeah, oh, yeah. so i feel like the the Oh, I know the strategy, the the authorial strategy for that open-ended ending in this book is to pose that questioning of reality upon the reader after they put the book down. So in that sense, the book never really ends. The book exists as long as you exist. Um, and, right. and, and the nature of living and death is in, is in question in here uh, in this book. And, and I just think it's endlessly fascinating. My students really did a good job with it. Yeah, it's it's really a great moment. Uh, uh I mean, we're giving spoilers to people, but, you know, the book's been out a while, so yeah. <laughs> pause, it, pause this and go read it if you don't want to hear it. Um, but, that, you know, you go through this whole thing thinking Joe Chip is the one who's in Half-Life and Glenn Runster is the one who's in, who's, who's you know, still alive, and then it, it he just swaps it on you right at the end there. Now, uh, I've heard I've heard some people say that because he was so pressed for time, oftentimes PKD would, would simply wrap up storylines quickly because he needed to get him off to the editor because he was hard up mm. um, from for cash and it's honestly hard to tell in any of the books of his I've, I've read whether that's what's going on or whether he truly is trying to leave the ambiguity I tend to err on the side of saying he intends it because we see the same thing in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep the big question at the end of that is still kind of are the androids people um is Deckard an android, right? Um, yeah. You know, what, what's the relationship there? Or in Man in the High Castle. Um, it's interesting because you talked about in Man in the High Castle when, um, I can't remember his name, Totoimi uh, or something like that, who, who, who shifts from San Francisco into the real San Francisco. Yeah. But what's really interesting there is is if you note details about the book they're reading, right? Because um, to set this up for folks, um, in A Man in a High Castle, it's an alternate history where the Nazis and the Japanese win World War II, but there's this book going around that depicts an alternate history where the United States won World War II. Um, so it's sort of a novel within a novel, um, reality within a reality kind yeah. of thing. What's really interesting, though, is that you've got the world of A Man in a High Castle where the Nazis and Germans, or the Germans and the, the Japanese win, and then you have the universe of the book. Now, if you'll, it, it, I don't know if you notice this, but the, the, the details in that book are not reality. They're not actually, you know, the, the the same presidents. It's not Truman. It's not the Cold War, right? Right. It's a, so, so you've really kind of got three realities bouncing around in a man in the high castle, right? And it's it poses that same question at the end of the book. You're kind of left wondering. Which one is real? Are any of them real? Are they all real? Like, and they all seem equally valid, really. Uh, in, right, in, in the their end, own right, ways. right. Um, and going back to the thing about the Nazis winning world, uh, going back to our discussion about technological progress, having won right. World War II in this novel, the Nazis accomplish incredible technological That's feats, true. right? Uh, and so, like colonize the Mars and the Moon, and <laughs> you can fly from Germany to New York in an hour, right? And it's like it's it's um. I think that's Philip K. Dick's way of calling progress into into question. I mean, 
do we love progress so much that it's awesome if the Nazis accomplished it, right? Or what, at what cost does, pro- right. does progress come? Yeah, they, they completely, uh, it's implied that they completely wipe out Africa, um, essentially. The, the, they, there are no black people left, essentially, uh, in the world. <laughs> and they implausibly drain the Mediterranean for some reason. Yeah, yeah. So, so th- this is like a overt and, and built-in critique of the myth of progress in, in that book there. Um, I want to. So in uh, Ubik, one of the ways that the Joe Chip character knows, uh, if we can know anything in this book, um, that he is in Half Life, is Runciter starts appearing on his money. Um, if, I, if I remember correctly, and so uh, and he sees that, and that's oh, that's reality shifting, uh, and that's kind of weird, right? And so um, and that's how he starts to stumble upon his the nature of his reality and then the book ends and this is a major spoiler um and the it's a very short it's a page and a half long um chapter uh and then he reckons recognized the profile uh well this he's looking at a 50 cent piece and then he recognized Runciter, right? right who is the one who's supposed to be alive who's supposed to be alive having helped joe chip through his half-life experience right um and then he recognized the profile i wonder what this means he asked himself strangest thing i've ever seen most things in life eventually can be explained but joe chip on a 50 cent piece it was the first joe chip money he had ever seen he had an intuition chillingly that if he searched his pockets and billfold he would find more this was just the beginning and that's the end of the novel right and so that is i mean to me if there so was fantastic. talk about an open-ended ending, right? The beginning <laughs> is literally the last word of the end. And, and so, um, yeah, I think for me, the way I re- I, I suppose it's possible that there are kind of material concerns you know, built into the, the writing process and publication process that are interesting and worth looking at. But artistically, the book as it stands, what it does is right. make you carry with you the doubt and the paranoia <laughs> that right. the, the characters you just read experienced um right and it's, it's it's important probably to note that money is also ubiquitous throughout this book like you have to put nickels in to open your own front door yes. or use the toaster or open the fridge like you're the people are constantly needing to use money for every little thing so it's so it's kind of uh, you don't really see that. You think it's just kind of a, a, oh, this is just one of those throwaway things to make it more of a story, right? Um, but you get to the end and you see the money serving as this sort of catalyst. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not even sure really what to make of that, but I just think it's sort of worth noting how, how how it sort of funnels down to that point. I mean, it's the ultimate mediator of almost every level of human experience. I mean, the in the book, yeah, in the book, and so I mean that. I mean, to me, it's a it's a overt critique of, of late capitalism and, and the role that the exchange of money plays in identifying us as humans. Uh, and I think that's one thing that worried Dick a lot. So, um, uh, go ahead. I just want to say one quick thing about the existentialist aspect of Dick, um, and, and on these unresolved endings, the thing that I, I, I think I really find kind of interesting is that on one level, I feel like what, what PKD is trying to get us to also see is that the answer to those questions might not matter. The answer to the question am I an android? Are androids people? Or am I alive? Or is this other guy alive? Or um, is this the true historical reality? Or is this other one the true historical reality? Those 
I get the feeling that in terms of social critique, what he's partly doing, at least this is my read, and, and this is kind of a theory I'm tr- fleshing out, so you can tell me if you think this is you know rubbish, but um, he, I, I see this sort of emphasis where he's pointing out that at the end of the day, the answer to that question doesn't matter so much as the the fact that we're asking the question. Yeah. And the, that we're asking the question, can it be different, right? Can our reality be different. It gives us a, a vision of a reality that, like in Man on the High Castle, that looks better than ours. So even if that's not our reality, maybe that's a plausible reality. Maybe it's something that actually gives us some hope as a human species, right? Um, and what we can do now, uh, and this is especially true of Blade Runner, um, what we can do now is not so much worry about the question as to live authentically, to live... Um, hopefully to live empathically in Blade Runner yeah. um, e- even if it's not even if the curtain never gets pulled aside and we see the wizard right the man behind the curtain e- even if that never happens and we're the only ones who get it if we're living with with that if we're living with the grain of the universe then maybe the illusion doesn't really matter that much I don't know what, what do you think of that 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 sounds utterly existentialist to me. I mean, it reminds me so much of the idea of bad faith. Uh, this was uh, uh, Sartre or Camus. I think, it's Sartre? Sartre. I think it's Sartre. Yeah. Uh, the idea that to kind of settle for easy questions or easy answers about your life and not probing them deeply is an act of bad faith. Um, and, and you're just sort of okay. cheating yourself out of really a, a, the best lived life right and, and so yeah. I, I think that I mean Farmer obviously Michael Farmer would obviously have much more to say about that um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah that seems to be utterly consistent with uh, an existentialist philosophical perspective um, absolutely yeah um, I buy it you've convinced me um, <laughs> we're running over time but I, we have a couple really I'm important so questions no 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 this is great it's okay <laughs> listener this one's going to go more than an hour just you know suck it up I guess um, so uh, we got to talk about sexism because it's kind of a dark cloud that follows this genre around I think uh, what are some historical issues that sci-fi's had with gender and how might it actually complicate the high minded intentions of some of its authors yeah, th- this was. I was not expecting this question. When I looked at the notes, um, I was, I was intrigued, and I had to do. I, I've, I've run into it before, um, but I had to really sit and think about it. Um, I think that there's a really sort of plausible historical explanation, uh, <laughs> and this is just based on my own sort of experience in the fan culture. Um, and I think it has to do, kind of going back to the pulps, um, it has to do to who this was marketed towards. This yeah. was marketed towards adolescent boys and so they came especially the nerdy adolescent boys right this nerd culture grew around this genre and um as this grew around this genre i think they started to become very invested in it right they became invested in this pop culture artifact that was theirs right and it was it was very exclusive um uh, you know, the jocks didn't watch Star Trek or play Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Right? Yeah. This was our thing that we were good at. So that fan uh, emphasis on the boy part of it, I think that fanboyism. This is again, this is me riffing a little bit, but I, this is just my perception of it. I think it grew up as a, as a very male thing, which is why the you have the trope of, of the nerds always being guys, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that made it, I think, very difficult for for 
uh, girls for women to actually sort of enter into science fiction because I think it, it honestly I think the fanboys were hostile. I think that there was probably a lot of hostility towards those who wanted to come in. Um, I think it all probably got worse when you get to guys like Asimov and Clark, and the reason is. Um, is because, and this is all based on perception from outside, I, I got the impression that there's an inside club, or at least was an inside club kind of atmosphere in STEM subjects as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, historically, girls don't do math, girls don't do science, right? Um, so I, I can only imagine that that added to the sort of, um, this is a guy thing, um, and that sexism is still very prevalent now. Yeah. Um, and there's a very slow progress to women entering it. So, so to the question of, of, of whether it undermines or complicates the progressive vision of science fiction, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, definite yes there. It does yeah. undermine it. I don't think it nullifies it, though. Um, but mm-hmm. but and, and I, I, I think I'd like to, uh, at some point I'd like to cite a couple maybe uh, uh, examples of, of where it's actually pushed the boundaries on, on the uh, gender issues. But but the sexism in the genre really ought to be recognized, and, and um, at the same time, you know, there's the tension of saying no critique is ever quite unhypocritical, right? No right. no no group is ever um, without its um, without their their problems and their gatekeeping. So. Right. Absolutely, and um, you made a great point about STEM fields. Uh, I read, I wake up to the inside higher ed email every day and so this is what i the first thing i do when i wake up is read that that wakes me up for some reason and uh ancient aliens puts me to sleep and that wakes me up so um <laughs> <laughs> not saying it was aliens maybe, but uh, it was alien. <laughs> it's something that dick would write isn't it oh that's that's a character in a dick novel um but uh i and i read this about this this is probably a, a, a the christian feminist Field. I mean, they have, would have a lot more to say about right. this. I'd, I'd love to see them do an episode on, on feminist yeah. sci-fi because I haven't read much of it. Yeah, and if and if any of those folks are listening, I'd love for you to comment on the the, the Facebook page about your thoughts on this issue. Please do. I'm I'm a total novice to that. I'm, <laughs> I, to my shame, I, I've got a couple books waiting at the library. I'm going to try and rectify that. Yeah. <laughs> but there are um, articles um, all, very regularly, and I'll post a link to one or two in the show notes, um, about the difficulty of women in not only breaking into but sustaining a career in STEM fields. Um, and it's not just the sciences. I mean, philosophy has really gone under uh, a lot of uh, – or gone through a lot of controversy, the the academic um, field of philosophy at least. It, um, it's a problem in theology too. I mean, oh, absolutely. Um, um, I'm writing a note to myself to put this in the show notes, STEM and women, right? Uh, don't forget that. I've run across a million of them. But, yeah, there's a uh, – that's a, a big problem – uh, in those academic fields, but also in, in science fiction, um, the the Hugo Awards is the sort of the major kind of. It's like the Oscars for science fiction, essentially, uh, yeah. for science fiction fiction. And uh, the um, uh, there was a controversy a few years ago. I mean, there's an ongoing controversy about. I mean, men who are like staunchly misogynist and unabashedly so, uh, who <laughs> who are openly yeah. resistant to the idea of opening the field up to uh, right. minorities and women. They think it's all just a bunch of PC bullcrap or something um, is how they would, I think, put it. And um, it's it's kind of shocking to hear someone be that publicly defensive of such indefensible positions. Um, but there is something in the <laughs> culture of, uh, of, of science fiction that is um, uh, still resistant to um, yeah. diversification in, in many ways. Now, throughout its history, though, 
there are examples of women making you know great statements within the genre. The Handmaid's Tale is a is a, a, a famous example. Yeah. Margaret Atwood's um, dystopian kind of uh, future about uh, a, a Christian theocracy and uh, the what it, the subjugation of women uh, in that that is a science fiction book. Ursula Le Guin is is a major figure in, in this who. Um, people like this explicitly put feminist themes in, into their work. Right. And so science fiction has housed, um, diverse viewpoints, <laughs> right. But, uh, the genres itself is really kind of, uh, has had a lot of problems. Uh, and it's something we really at least need to acknowledge here. Sorry, I was muted there. Yeah. I, and I think there's a, there's there, I mean, I'm, a I'm a Trekkie, and let me tell you, there is no group of gatekeepers worse than Trekkies, right? Yeah. Um, saying whether you're a true Trekkie or whether, you know, watching, liking the new Star Treks makes you a Trekkie or doesn't, right? Um, gatekeeping is deeply, deeply entrenched yeah. in this in this genre um, and in this subculture. And so I think that's, that's a big part of what we see there. Um, we do see some pushback, though, that I think is really helpful, right? Yeah. Um, so a couple examples spring to mind. The Whoopi Goldberg one earlier yeah. that I thought was really – that was both race and gender. Um, there's this incident of PKD, though, with Ursula Le Guin. Um, they were actually friends, and, and she, I believe, was inspired by his early work somewhat. And she um, harshly criticized a piece of uh, – or, or some of his work during a period, saying that um, he used to have great uh, fleshed-out women characters um, – but uh, then um, he says uh, – there. I have a quote here, and I'll, I'll blank on the cuss words. She says, <laughs> um, quote, the women in some of his later novels were symbols, whether goddess, B-word, hag, witch. But there weren't any women left, and there used to be women in mm. his books. So there's this, this deep critique she made of him. Hmm. Um, and through a series of private letters – and I've got this on a website here. I could It's on a blog. I found it. But um, he ended up – um, replying that he wrote in one of his books, I think the transmogrif- uh, uh, Transmigration of Timothy Archer, he has a, a, a prominent woman character, and it was one of his favorite characters. And he said um, about, he wrote to Le Guin, he said, this is the happiest moment of my life, Ursula, to meet face-to-face this bright, scrappy, witty, educated, tender woman. And had it not been for your analysis of my writing, I probably never would have discovered her. Hmm. So, so he acknowledges he sort of listened to the critique, right? He listened to the criticism, he um, and and tried to fix it, right? He yeah. tr- he listened, tried to to respond in a positive way, um, and so I think that's a good one, good example of how these things ought to go, yeah. right? Um, of of how the the genre could be turned around, um, and then the the other one, as I said earlier, was Ohura from um, from Star Trek. Yeah, um, what, what's really fascinating about her um l- let me just use the example you mentioned earlier uh uh plato's stepchildren the, the first interracial kiss now that was important for its own obvious reasons it was interracial kiss in the 60s right um it's pretty well known that she stayed she only stayed on star trek for the third season because mlk um martin luther king jr called her and said you need to stay on the show i heard i heard you were thinking about leaving don't wow. uh, our daughters need this right and and um, so that's, again, another interesting thing. But um, what's really fascinating about that scene, though, is that in that scene, it's not a romantic kiss. In that scene, her and William uh, uh, Kirk's minds are being controlled. They're oh. being forced to do this. 
they're being they're being they're basically puppets. So this is kind of a violation of both of them. Right? Yeah, they're they're um, puppets on a stage. And what she I, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but what she says to him basically is that um, as my captain, you I, I, whenever I've seen you, you you've always it's it's given me strength, and I haven't been afraid. Right when I've seen you in you know doing what you do, um, and she she basically says in that moment, um, I'm not afraid. Right? She's not a weepy, you know, frightened female. Oh, I don't want this to happen. Right? She's saying, I have strength to get through this moment. Even though this is a violation of us, I can, I can withstand that. I can be strong through that. Yeah. Um, and I, again, I'd love to hear some of the Christian feminists talk about this. Um, this is not my area, but I, I really, I really think that 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 and some other examples are, are just great moments in that show. That that. I mean, that show has its, like I said, complicated relationship with sexism, but yeah. at the same time, it, um, I think there, it was, was making sincere efforts to push back on some of those, um, some of those, those mores of the sixties as well. So, um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, and you, um, mentioned, and so Star Trek is sort of the, maybe the preeminent example of fan culture. In some ways it sort of invented yeah. fan culture. Uh, uh did, I mean, yeah. the, the, there's a great documentary called Trekkies. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, nope. and it's at both, I mean, you make fun of the, you laugh at these folks, but you also love them at the same time. It's just the, the most kind of magical <laughs> documentary. Um, but it's obviously you uh, <laughs> condescending attitude, Danny. No, <laughs> no, no. no. I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I think that's one of the great accomplishments of the movie is that it, it, it laughs with, with these folks, right? It, it, it we enjoy right. laughing at what they do with, Without like thinking less of them, and I think it's right. kind of a brilliant movie in that way. Um, and uh, but in that movie, I remember them talking about how they kind of invented the the fan conference in in, in many oh, ways. Yeah. And so, um, th- which is, you had offered up a sub question to this and prep for this, and I think it's it's a Star Trek is a great sci fi or a segue into that uh, of the. Uh, the idea of science fiction as a subculture itself and how wider popularity can lead to a commodification and resentment by quote unquote true fans. Uh, and there is yeah. there, that's where you get the sort of sense of ownership that, um, Gamergate, I think is one of these things that, uh, that, yeah. that sprung out of this where people think that there is, um, this is their exclusive property, uh, as fans and they're really, vigilant about guarding the borders of that fandom and people have to sort of earn enough street cred to even participate in the fandom and they get really upset captain marvel becomes a woman or thor becomes a woman in marvel comics and people flip out right um because somehow they've taken personal um ownership of this um what, what did you have to say about that yeah, I think I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and and my thought behind the commodification question is is when science fiction becomes really popular, yeah. right? So so whether it's superhero movies or um, uh, another sort of one I've seen is the 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 Doctor Who crowd. Oh yeah. Um, um, I've I've uh, actually written um, a little bit about Doctor Who, um, and I, I I was a fan of the reboot series. Um, uh, but what you found there is. Um, <clears throat> You know, you get people who either did some cosplay or they, they watched Doctor Who or maybe they were into mm-hmm. superhero movies and they say, oh, I'm such a nerd, right? When in reality, 
to people who are really nerds, right? To get to the gate, you know, going back to the gatekeeping, to, to people who are really nerds who are really into science fiction, they're like, you're not. You're just like this pop culture phenomenon that's popular for five minutes, and you know, and yeah. when the series dies, you're not going to be a nerd anymore. You're going to go back to watching Real Housewives or whatever. Right? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I'm not actually saying that. I'm playing the character, sure. Sure. Here, yeah. Okay. So. That is the gatekeeping attitude, right? You know, oh, you watch the Star Wars movie, or Star Trek movie, so you're a Trekkie all of a sudden. Yeah. And there's this sort of derision and resentment saying you're trying to take away this thing that's really important to me and act as if it's yours when you don't know what it's all about. Yeah. Um, and I think while I understand that sentiment, and I've probably been guilty of it more than once myself um, as, a, as a true geek, nerd, or whatever you want to call it um, – it is kind of dangerous, right? Because it's it's a weird form of pride in a way, right? Yeah. It's a way to say, I'm superior to you because I'm a real fan. Don't pretend. Don't be a poser, right? Um, when, in fact, people really just want to enjoy this stuff. And, and maybe we should just let them. And be happy that people are paying money to see a Star Trek movie so that more Star Trek gets made, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a really interesting article. It was in The Atlantic a a little while ago um, by uh, Asher Elbine. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it's called Enough with the Canon. And, and I think it's responding mostly to the fan backlash about the Batman versus Superman um, movie and uh, uh, and the liberties that people think they're taking with the characters. Uh, and, and people really become upset about this. And, and um, Elbine has a really interesting line in here. There's only one problem with true, with true canon it doesn't exist and in an effort to hold people to it enthusiasts strangle criticism hang hamstring creators and make fan communities far more toxic for everyone uh and, and i feel like this is um the kind of culture that philip k dick himself would would really be suspicious of uh, because uh it, it's it's authoritarian in its sense and and, and what you do is you create a toxic culture on message boards about your favorite show um for what <laughs> i just right. don't it's understand exclusionary just for the sake of ex of of, of per maintaining a pristine group it is yeah. it, it's a form of trying to find um distinction through taste and and the idea right. and, and in no way is it really different than the characterization of sort of a highbrow literary snob or something like that i mean you are right. excluding people um through a construction of your exclusive access and right to um, experience of a fictional character, um, which are really commercially held entities when we're talking about science fiction and, and particularly superhero movies. I mean, it's right, like they're ultimately there to make money, right? Yeah, <laughs> like it's like off our, of us. It's like fighting people who consume. Them. It's fighting over Coke versus Pepsi, essentially, right? But um, but people <laughs> internalize this. Uh, it, time <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so, um, well, um, recommendations. I like uh, every once in a while. I think this is a topic that lends itself to a couple of recommendations. Let me just throw one out. Um, you mentioned the time machine. I think that that's a, a really base or, you know, uh, a year one sort of uh, sci-fi text to read. It has right. built in it early on um, a suspicion about man's man time, mankind's progress uh, in the, the world that the uh, the time traveler ends up in is not necessarily a happy one. He sees a lot of uh, negative right. consequences on his journey through through history. And uh, but the book I really want to kind of recommend, I read it in um, 
uh, when I was an undergrad. It's called uh, The Einstein Intersection by Samuel R. Delaney. Uh, and it's a really, it's a very short book. It's only 120 pages long or something, but it's quite dense and it's very postmodern. And the premise is they're this race of aliens who have somehow inhabited um, a post-apocalyptic kind of earth where mankind's uh, remnants, they're just sort of sifting through and constructing their identities out of, they're piecing together things through religion, the Beatles albums, and, and uh, classical mythology, and, and everything, it gets kind of mixed up in one kind of identity soup. Uh, and these people are struggling, basically, to kind of learn who they are. And one of the ideas is, they were like beings of light who had no need to be burdened by material flesh. And yet they chose to do that and limited themselves in that way. And it's a really um, kind of profound, it's a difficult read, I will admit, but it's a, to me a really kind of thought provoking book. I've read it one time, like I said, and how many years ago was that? And I'm still find myself like thinking about its major themes. So uh, the Einstein intersection by Samuel Delaney is just a, a terrifically um, challenging book. Um, what do you have for us, Carter? Yeah, I haven't read that. I, I, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to pick that up. Um, I uh, I have a couple. Um, one, I want. Uh, it's really hard because we talked a lot about a lot of my favorites in yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. in our conversation. Um, so I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to say that folks do need to read "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep." Yeah, um, I'll get on that. Um, yeah, because it it it. Uh, not only does it challenge our tendency to demonize, which I think uh, we talked about it at length, um, but it also has some wonderful stuff about our propensity for consumerism. Um, I think it even has some application to our, our understanding of social media, right? The, mm. our, uh, artificial means of connecting with others. This is the book, mind you, not the film. Blade Runner doesn't get into this so much. Yeah. But well, the, the book has... Just to pause you, I, I thought the same thing about Ubik with the whole idea of Half-Life. I felt like oh, this yeah. is sort of like a Facebook world where you you have relationships with a, an avatar of someone rather than a someone. Right. And, and so, yeah, keep going. Right. Well, in uh, in the book um, here, that what uh, in order for humans to feel empathy, there's a couple different things they do. One is they have animals that um and the animal so owning an animal um that you can not only preserve from extinction because of nuclear fallout, mm. but it also gives you this opportunity to show empathy towards it. Right. But really early on, you get the sense that this is really just. A, a status symbol, right? It's just another facade. It's oh, I'm I'm better than these people because I own a real animal and not an electric one, right? The, a lot of people have electric ones because they can't afford real ones, yeah. and that creates all this anxiety in them, like they're fakes, right? Um, and then um, it, one of the ways, that, another way in the book that humans feel empathy is they they grab this um, they have this empathy box and they they grab the handles on this box and it connects them to all these other people who are grabbing the box at the same time and they all feel each other's emotions. Oh, wow. So it's like the, it's, it's this vicarious experience of emotion and empathy without ever having to actually look at another human being or be in the same room with them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's just really kind of interesting. Oh man. Foresight of, of our own. <laughs> uh, I mean that, and that's not even getting into the mood organ. Then they can adjust their mood. You can, you have a dial and Decker can change his mood to, you know, happy, sad. I feel like being depressed today. I feel like being businesslike today. So he's controlling, even down to controlling your own emotions artificially. And all of that is strewn throughout, um, 
throughout the book do androids dream of electric sheep so there's some some consumerism some like detachment from ourselves and and then the tendency to demonize others and and all of it's sort of uh um sort of woven together and and so i want to recommend that i also wanted to recommend um I also want to recommend a film or a, a film option, but I'm actually going to recommend a series and one particular episode. But watch the whole series if you want. Um, it's called Fringe. It's on Netflix. Okay. Um, it's lesser known J.J. Abrams. Okay. Uh, it's it's better than Lost. <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's an interesting film because it tries to work with a lot of hard uh, hard sci sci fi hard scientific and technological ideas or at least theoretical ideas. Yeah. Um, but throughout it, there's um, there's some under powerful underlying themes about what's kind of really important to us. Um, one is the responsibility of scientists. Like uh, one of the things I was talking about earlier, the responsibility, not just of scientists, but in this context, uh, to think of the consequences of your actions. Right? What are you bringing into the world? Right. What we do as human beings that change the, the the environment around us what effect are those things going to have and and, and taking responsibility for those things um, and then there's an underlying theme about love for one another as human beings um, as being much more important much more ultimate than pushing the boundaries of knowledge um, and the episode I wanted to recommend specifically of Fringe is in season two and it's called White Tulip and it's probably the one of the best time travel stories I've ever I've ever seen. It has um I can't remember his name. He was Robocop. Um gosh I cannot remember his name off the top uh, of my head. But Peter, Peter Weller? Peter, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it kind of it's widely considered the best episode of that series and and, and um, it pulls together some um, all of those kinds of themes um, together. Responsibility for our actions. Mm. Um, uh, love is more dominant, more important than um, than pushing back the boundaries or getting what we want. Um, so Fringe, the whole series, or White Tulip, that specific episode, I, I'd encourage folks that, uh, to look at those. those are, um, it's a good series and deserves some uh, airtime <laughs> from folks. So Yeah, someone else suggested I watch that, actually. I think now that um, I've had a backup, uh, now that I've that seconded, I might check that out. Uh, that actually sounds really interesting. Thanks. And we didn't even talk about the Twilight Zone. You're talking about this sort of um, TV oh, series yeah. anthology. Oh, there's some back channel talk about maybe a Christian humanist Twilight Zone crossover <laughs> experience, and so uh, we'll see if that happens. But yeah, um, absolutely, that would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but yeah, there's a there's a lot. I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of science fiction. It's a vast, um, course, in, almost yeah. impenetrable body of work at this point. Um, Carter, I really appreciate uh, you suggesting the show, first of all, reaching out, and then agreeing to be on here. You were terrific. Please come back often. Uh, it was uh, Thanks so much. I had a blast, Danny. This was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad because this was really exciting. I, I You made me like think in ways that I uh, probably shouldn't uh, during faculty orientation week, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. I'll, I'll suffer through tomorrow's 8.30 a.m. Uh, meeting. So, um, Anyway, um, Carter Stepper, thank you so much for your uh, time and your uh, information and your insight here. This was wonderful. And anybody out there listening, if you have ideas uh, about this show you want to respond to, our Facebook page is a great place to do that. I believe that's how Carter contacted me. Um, and if you also have an idea for a show that you would like to, to appear on, uh, let me know. We'll put you on the queue. So, uh, Carter Stepper, uh, Have fun in Spokane, uh, and stay in touch, man. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. 
Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, intrepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye.